this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering four conversations from Season 3, Episode 15, our review of last week's Liver Connect and Nash Connect meetings, sponsored by the Chronic Liver Disease Foundation. Today's episode of Surfing the Nash Tsunami is sponsored by Madrigal Pharmaceuticals, a clinical-stage biopharmaceutical company pursuing novel therapeutics for Nash. Madrigal's lead candidate, Resmetarum, is a once-daily, oral, thyroid hormone receptor beta-selective agonist that is designed to target key underlying causes of NASH in the liver. Resmetarum is currently being evaluated in two Phase three clinical studies, Maestro NASH and Maestro NAFLD-1, designed to demonstrate multiple benefits in patients with NASH. For more information, visit www.madrigalpharma.com. This conversation focuses on Saturday morning's Liver Connect sessions on NASH. The panelists cover the roundtable discussion format of the sessions as well as the content and insights that emerged. In the end, the group discusses topics they hope will gain greater focus at the third Liver Connect next year. This conference addressed important fatty liver and public health issues in unique, creative ways. Our discussions in this episode reflect the importance of the issues and the innovativeness of the approach. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Mazen Nureddin. Let's dig into Saturday. Let me so let me second that. I think I think actually you guys have done a great job of putting together a conference that brings people together and gives them space to think and process. And one of the comments I made to Zobear in the interview this morning was I was really interested with how you guys set up the Nash session on Saturday. Right, a couple of short presentations, but mostly um, questions and common reflection on major issues. How did you feel that worked? Did you get out of what you were looking for? And, and panelists, how did you feel it worked? Marcelo Kugel Moss. Let me take the first stab at that. I think that the feedback that we got was 100% in favor of that format. Most of the people that came to the meeting knew what we were talking about. And rather than being put to sleep by a long lecture, they were stimulated by the conversations and back and forth and point counterpoint of uh, those experts that were involved in the different sessions. And I think it happened in pretty much every session from NASH to pediatrics, from pediatrics to cirrhosis, to the complications of cirrhosis and to viral hepatitis. It happened everywhere. And so we always get a lot of feedback and try to get a lot of feedback after each meeting and try to make it better for the following meeting. We did a good thing this time. Everything really went well. And and to my knowledge and from the personal feedback that I got from a few dozen people was that they loved this format. It worked. I will echo that as well. I didn't get the feedback. I I totally loved it. And you cannot go wrong when the maestro is Zuberi Unasi. And then you have in the panel, of course, there there are many other experts, but we had an amazing experts. I want to give a shout out to our women leaders, Alina Allen and Manal Abdelmelek. We had the father of fibrosis, Scott Friedman. So that was really, really good. As you know, I was a speaker on this panel. So I think it was a bit challenging to talk about NITs or treatment. Stephen also was challenged about all that, although we know it well in 10 minutes. But we did manage to... Maybe in the future, I will say, give a few more minutes to the talk. I mean, I'll give you an example. Someone said, well, you, you did not throw any jokes during your talk. And I said, there was no time for that. I had 42 slides and I, that I gave in 12 minutes. So I had to go boom, 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 done. But it was absolutely amazing. I enjoyed every second of it, despite the boom, 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 done. I totally agree. And one of the things I loved was even the conversations, right? Could go from the theoretical to the real and back again at warp speed. There was one moment, I don't remember exactly the topic, where Scott 
Friedman was talking about the theoretical. Naeem came in and he talked about how do you treat patients? I do this, I do that, I do this, I don't do that. And then it jumped right back to the theoretical again. And I thought the interplay of the two was really, really helpful. Whoever was listening, whatever they wanted to get out of it, they could get out of it. And if they wanted to put all the pieces together, that was there as well. And yeah, hats off to you. I, I can't imagine a better panel. I, I agree. I mean, a better, better set of people and then a better dialogue. If I recall correctly, you were referring to Scott talking about more rare pediatric diseases and Naeem basically in about one minute explained two conditions and how to work them up. Yep. That's exactly right. Thank you. Naeem, how, how did, you know, you did not present at the session, but you certainly were engaged in the dialogue. How did you feel about that? Naeem Alkuri. I really enjoyed the session. I think we provided high level updates on diagnostics and therapeutics and kudos to the presenters, but they were able to really discuss uh, most of the data that's out there. As Mazen said, you know, in 12 minutes, I mean, how can you discuss every diagnostic test and every drug in the pipeline? But they really did a nice job summarizing. I'm excited also that potentially in next year, we can go from the theoretical to the practical and actually talk about, okay, well, these are the non-invasive tests that we are using today to decide who's going to go on the first FDA-approved medication for NASH. This is how we're going to monitor. And then we're going to talk about, you know, the first medicine or maybe two medicines next year that will be FDA-approved. And then tell people how we're going to choose which one to use first, how we're going to monitor response to treatment, what are the side effects that they need to be looking for. So I'm hoping that this is the last year that we are in the theoretical realm and next year we're going to be very practical and it's going to be very exciting for the attendees because these are things they can do now. They're not in the context of clinical trials. They're not in the context of a new biomarker trying to get to FDA approval. It's going to be a real life and we will have options. Naeem, I couldn't agree more except I suspect it might be two years, not one year, but we'll see. Well, I'm the ultimate optimist. I've been saying. Uh, yeah, on this one, you really are the ultimate optimist because I know when the readouts are and there is meterom data, and I can't, I can't imagine FDA will get through it quite that quickly. But no matter how good the readouts are, but and he's always right. That's why we didn't have a follow-up comment. Well. That's why I followed up, because then I, then I get to be wrong. It's a wonderful thing. But I pay myself to be wrong. Not a lot, but I pay myself to be wrong, so it's okay. Then let's come to Naeem Alcorn. <laughs> okay. So Naeem just led to the lesson, I'm thinking, which is, for, first of all, I think that this and NASHTAG are very, very different conferences, but having them both, in, in not only ones in the cold and ones in the hot, but in, in what they're formulated to do. But I think they really neatly bookend going from different ways to think about where we are and where we're headed and how to tackle the real challenges. And each I think is helped by the presence of the other. What do you foresee, Naeem already told us, everyone else, what would you foresee for Liver Connect and Nash Connect next year? How would you see it being different? Uh, how do you build on this experience? Again, I, I don't I don't want to predict because I have no idea what's going to happen and I cannot talk for others. I think that both meetings have their work cut out for them. We definitely have enough challenges in the research arena and in the study formulation and interaction with FDA arena that I think that we could do the NASDAQ meeting every other month. There's plenty of work to be done. As far as the Liver Connect portion of NAFLD and NASH, clearly we are uh, just getting our uh, tools ready to be able to roll this out 
to the community, to those who need to participate, to the primary care physicians, to endocrinology offices, gastroenterology offices outside of academic centers. We need to involve all the community, utilize uh, the development of telehealth medicine, definitely empower APPs, and we need to work on all of these aspects in order to be able to make a dent in this condition. So I think that we have plenty of work to do in the years to come. For me, for next year, I want to borrow from other episodes. With Litmus and Nimble in, in IT coming, there's a true motion driven by patients and patients' advocacy to find a solution for the screen failure, patient not being enrolled in trials for, because of them. So I think we're not going to see the replacement of liver biopsy in phase three next year, but the the movement will magnify and we will see more and more data and um, hopefully the FDA and EMA will be more engaged. And that will be also important as we get closer to the hopefully approval of resmitarum because we're not biopsying in clinical care all these patients. So next year, I think you will hear a lot of people's like, what do I do now? I mean, one of the things that when I was presenting at the NIT and Scott Friedman asked after the talk is like, so what do we do? And sure, I can tell him what do I do, but I cannot make any recommendation as of today because there's no formal recommendation on which NIT to use, especially to monitor treatment. We'll start shaping that next year or so with more data, more consortiums, and a drug getting uh, closer to, to be approved. Louise Campbell. I totally agree with Marzen there. We do have to move to an NIT. It'd be interesting to see what the license granted on. If it's the normal sort of way it will be granted on a biopsy proven because that's where it's come from trials and obviously we want to move beyond the biopsy but I did a I was mentioning to Roger earlier before we were online I did a whole series of patients this weekend and if that's the style of patient coming through I could have recruited to a NASH trial on all of the new patients coming through high fibrosis most caps well above the 300 let alone the 200s and this was a general list uh, that has been waiting 12 months Covid has not been kind most of it was matnaffled or maffled and most of it would tick screening. I didn't have any blood tests so I couldn't do FASCO or anything like that but these are regional units and we could just recruit and recruit but hopefully some of these patients will get access to help recruit these studies and that's where we're going to have to be finding the treatment from. So litmus, limbal, NIT, all of the data that we're getting now with being able to track with non-invasive therapies, we need to put it into practice and really put it into the clinical realm and discuss it with the agencies for that. You know, I think we had a nice session on NASH on Saturday that started with epidemiology and I felt like in the NASH Connect we covered epidemiology very well this year. So I would suggest next year, you know, we use the second talk from Saturday morning, which is the NITs and maybe do NASH Connect on NITs because I think we have so much data that's being generated, uh, but we need to all sit down and have a discussion how to utilize them. There's a lot of focus on this new AGA screening algorithm that starts with FIBOR and then, you know, you take certain patients to transient elastography. But I want to emphasize that this is for primary care physicians. This is not what hepatologists and gastroenterologists will be utilizing to decide on treatment decisions and how to monitor patients. So we need to have more consensus, realize that these NITs are complementary, figure out a way to combine them that is cost effective, that would not break the system. Uh, so a lot to talk about, whether we're talking about wet biomarkers or imaging tests or combination like the FAST or the MASS. And so that could be potentially a good topic for next year. And then, of course, maybe in a couple of years, as you said, Roger, when we have 
drugs, then maybe do another Nash Connect on the new drugs and how we're going to utilize them. And I agree with Marcelo. We need to include the advanced practice practitioners, APPs, because at the end of the day, we generate the data, we invent the algorithms, but they actually apply it to their patients and take excellent care of them. So we need them to be very involved early on. Let me agree with Naeem 100% and get a little bit controversial. I might upset a couple of friends or more out there, but also we're talking about AGA as well as easel algorithm in the primary care setting starting with the fifth floor followed by transient elastography. And here I am in trouble. I don't think this is set with stone, especially with the FIB4. It's a great test. It's cheap. It has high negative predictive value. And we want the PCPs to do something. And if I get them to do this, I'm very happy. But I want to remind people also that there are studies that showed half of the people in the indeterminate and the low cutoff zone had clinical outcomes. So if I want to predict in the future, once primary care, they have a pickup on the FIB4, I think the door is open to replace it with a better test that give us more confidence. And I know many others disagree with that, but these our disagreements bring us into research and improving patient care. The last two points serve to demonstrate actually why they're doing clinical care pathways in the first place, right? Which is the, the expectation isn't that the screening of the patient will start with a gastro or a hepatologist and that person will be doing FIB4. The idea is that if we fantasize a world where we could educate all the type 2 diabetics out there who, are, who have never been evaluated by their doctors that they need to get evaluated and fantasize that they then go rushing into their endocrinologist offices or maybe they just jump straight to a hepatologist. We don't have enough doctors to handle the demand. So the reason for the whole clinical care pathway challenge is so that if we amp up awareness rapidly, that we can get people evaluated at a place where it's efficient, where they don't have to wait a year, as Louise pointed out. And then by the time they get scanned, they've all got caps over 300 because they waited a year. So I think it's important not to overstate the role of FIB4, but not to understate it at the same time, which is Naeem, when Ian Rowe comes on and talks about leads, he talks about it being a very cheap test that can put people through quickly, and they're not going to miss that many people. And then they can go to a second test where they can start screening out the people that might have gotten screened out by a, a more sensitive test the first time. You know, Roger, I, I agree that FIP4 is, you know, cheap and readily available. Uh, my worry is people don't realize its limitations. Mazen mentioned a couple of things. You know, it doesn't work if you're younger than 40 years of age. We actually have data that in young adults, FIP4, the performance is not acceptable. Actually, when you take patients with advanced fibrosis, no advanced fibrosis on biopsy and you're on the FIP4 in younger adults, it just does not discriminate for you. It definitely doesn't work in children and and then you have to increase the cut point to two instead of 1.3 in elderly. Otherwise, every elderly patient who's like 75 will end up with high FIP4 just because age is part of the score. In reality, it only works if you're between 40 to 65. You want to use the, the cutoffs and there's a lot of nuances. I mean, if you have a viral illness and your platelet goes down because of the virus and you happen to calculate a FIP4, it's going to take you um, on the wrong path. I'd like to have something that's more liver specific eventually. I agree with you. Where we're at today is really not a good place and we need to screen more people and have something cheap. So I think it's a step forward. But we need to also educate more and more about its limitations and when it's not a good test to, to go by. So go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to say that I'm not necessarily going to speak in favor or against the FIB4. We definitely need a test that is simple to use for triaging at the primary care physician's level. So if we know that we have millions and millions and millions of people at risk 
clearly there's not enough specialists to screen them all and evaluate them all and decide who requires therapy or not. The entry into the system has to be at the primary care physician's level. It has to be a simple, single test that will triage and do the best possible job for the majority of patients. And then once the triage is done, those at high risk move on to specialty care and those not at high risk move on to down the pathway. It's not that they don't get looked at anymore. They just go down a different pathway that does not involve immediate specialty care. But we need a simple test. Today, it may be the fit for tomorrow we may have a better test, but we need a test. It's interesting when you talk about that. If you look at Fibroscan, if you look at the majority of the people that I scan in the lifestyle clinic, they have soft, fatty livers. They need endocrinologists or cardiologists. They don't need hepatologists. So it screens them out. There was a vast amount of people that I've done recently in healthcare that, again, they all had cardiac or diabetic, but had soft, fatty livers. We were screening them out of hepatology. They didn't need to come to hepatology. They needed to stay where they were in endocrinology and cardiology. So we have tests, but we need to be more accurate. I totally agree with you. But are we ever going to get the ideal blood test on an organ that regenerates itself with so much new tissue? I'm not 100% convinced that's actually ever going to occur. It's not the nature of the beast, I suppose. You know what I would like to see, uh, Louise, is, uh, you know how we screen with a lipid panel or heart disease? And we do it on everyone, right? I mean, it's uh, part of the guidelines now that uh, all adults in the United States need to have a lipid panel at a certain age. Actually, it's even recommended in children. With all the limitations we have with AST, ALT, I would love to actually get to a point where we get to do uh, something similar to transient elastography. Just at a, some point in life on everyone, similar to what was done in the Enhanced database, where they actually did transient elastography on about 10,000 individuals. The problem has been the cost of these machines. This is what we need to think about. Can we get to a point where it could be a handheld device that doesn't cost much, where you can do a quick liver screening, and all it's good for is for the negative predictive value to tell you that, as you said, you have a fatty liver that's soft. Come back in a couple of years, we can do this. I think that is feasible. I just bought my own ultrasound machine so I can go around Phoenix, do my own liver biopsies. And it didn't cost me much, honestly, to buy an ultrasound probe that will show you beautiful pictures of the liver. So once we get to that point, and I think the other thing that will probably happen is having these NASH clinics that will become part of, you know, how we take care of patients in the United States where you just come get a quick screening. In fact, in our offices in Arizona, we offer a fiber scan for anyone who's interested. And we do about a thousand fiber scans each month. And as you said, 80% will have low liver stiffness and we can reassure. Uh, so only 20% will end up coming. I know we have a lot of work. I know we're not there and I'm not saying we should proceed with this algorithm, but this is where I would like to be in the future, where it's point of care, ultrasound that can measure liver stiffness. And this is how you get more accurate results than AST, ALT, or FIB4. Whether the test is going to be called a FIB21 or a VCTE82 or whatever the system is, it needs to start at the population level and then it needs to trickle down to specialists. I spend hours on end on these networks of people that game online and talk to people all across the world and it is a lot of fun and it complements my serious side. Hopefully that was quirky enough for you. That's a winner. I mean, you know, I've, I've got a 32-year-old daughter who, who's been a gamer forever and will be a gamer for the rest of her life and they're just a different breed. 
And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with modeler par excellence Chris Estes and a group of key opinion leaders to discuss how the things we can learn in epidemiologic modeling can help shape drug development. Until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Thank you.